Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. The objective of these uh, lectures is to rethink human personality, just to know ourselves in the most practical, the most fundamental, and the most real ways. Because as it stands, we know ourselves through the lens of modern psychology. That's how we think of ourselves. We were all raised in this era, and we all were influenced by it. We think that way. We see ourselves that way. But there's something still missing. The picture is not complete. It's not enough to think of ourselves as good mood, bad mood, good self-image, low self-image, hormonal problems, chemical imbalances. All of that may be true and correct, but it doesn't give us a picture of what life is supposed to be. What is a healthy life? What's a healthy person? Obviously, a person without problems. That's a very vague description. And how do we get to be a person without problems? (laughs) We don't have an answer for that. Hasidus gives us a completely different look. Hasidic philosophy has a different opinion of what makes a human being and how we're supposed to be healthy and how we can get healthy. So we're trying to rethink the very definition of human nature and of the human stature. As if answering the question, what is a human being? We really don't know. We are certainly not just another mammal in spite of what you hear on uh, National Geographic, we're not just another mammal. We need to know what we are so that we know how to do it right. So let's, uh, let's give you a couple of definitions, fundamental definitions. First of all, the world is divided into four kingdoms. There's the inorganic, the mineral. Then there is the vegetable. Then there is the animal. And then there is the human. Different kingdoms. The human being is as different from an animal as an animal is from a vegetable. As different as a vegetable is from a stone. They have different qualities, they have different characteristics, different properties, different realities. A human being is different from an animal in a number of ways. Human being is more intelligent. Human being has freedom of choice. Human being speaks, communicates intelligently. There are many things we can point to 
that distinguish the human being from the animal. But the primary distinction, the primary distinction that makes the human being human is that a human being is driven by a need to fulfill a purpose, to feel that life is satisfying means to know that I am fulfilling my purpose. A human being convinced that there is no purpose is a damaged human being. An animal does not need a sense of purpose in order to be a healthy animal. A vegetable doesn't need a sense of purpose in order to be a healthy vegetable. But a human being without a purpose, without a meaning to life, is not a healthy human being. So let's take a look at what the human soul is made of. And we're not talking now about the godly soul that is unique to Jews. We're talking about the human soul, the soul that makes us human, not the soul that makes us Jewish. The soul is an entity comprised of a number of characteristics and functions. A human being is capable of intelligence. A human being is capable of emotions. A human being is willful. He has wants. And a human being has desires and pleasures. Let's take a look for a moment at the emotions. Love and hate, kindness and judgment, fear, jealousy, arrogance. In order to understand how all of these things work, we need to introduce a Kabbalistic concept. The Kabbalistic concept is that in the universe there are two systems universes. As it says in the description of creation, that in the beginning God created a world that was chaos. It was dark and chaotic. And then in the six days of creation, God created an orderly world by saying, let there be light on the first day, let there be a heaven on the second day, and so on. This is all by way of introduction. As a result of this creation, there are two powers, two influences, two phenomena going on at the same time. A world of chaos and a world of order. We won't talk about the divine aspects. Let's talk only about the human aspect. Where does anger come from? Where does the impulse of kindness come from? love or hate. Where do they come from? Obviously they come from the soul because a body without a soul feels nothing, has no emotions, has no experiences. So all these emotions come from the soul. Here's the problem. It can come from the soul in a chaotic manner. It can come from the soul in an orderly manner. The chaotic manner is called tohu, chaos, and the orderly manner is called tikkun, 
So it works like this. Every emotion is rooted in the soul itself. But the way that the emotions express themselves can be either directly from the soul into the heart, into the emotion, or it can come through the mind, through the intelligence, processed through intelligence. When it comes directly from the soul, it is very powerful. It's unstoppable. It's unreasonable. It's unconditional. When a person is angry, let's say, or hateful, and the hate or the anger are coming directly from the soul, does not stop at go, does not go through the mind, then it is a very overwhelming and powerful emotion. But it's chaotic. It's hard to guide. It's hard to control. In most cases, it will be destructive. Because first of all, it overwhelms the person himself. What does it mean when you lose your temper? You lose your temper? It's yours. How can you lose it? You're the one who's being angry. What do you mean you lost it? So when you get angry, you didn't lose your temper. You found your temper. You discovered your temper. You're experiencing your temper. Why do we say you lost your temper? What does it mean you fell in love? Don't fall. Falling is not good. You choose to love, that's nice. You found someone to love, nice. Don't fall. When you're overwhelmed by an emotion, you're no longer the master of that emotion. And in a real sense, it isn't yours. And if you're experiencing an emotion that isn't yours, then by definition, you're not being you. That's the world of chaos. The world of orderliness, the world of tikkun, is that it is true, in fact, that all emotions come from the soul, but the way they develop and express themselves is by being processed through the mind. If you process the emotion through the mind, then you have control over the emotion, you influence the emotion, it is yours. So when you're feeling that emotion, you're being you. That's more productive. There are times when we need to act on the chaos level. For example, person, a Jew is asked to bow to an idol. And there's no way he can do it. He can't. He cannot. It's not a choice. It's not an option. There's nothing to think about. He can't do it. He may even want to, but he can't. Cannot bring himself to do it. Where is this conviction and power coming from? Not through the process of the mind, directly from the soul. Only in that case, it's the godly soul. When a person finds a child, God forbid, buried under a truck, and must lift the truck off the child, and does, 
Where is that coming from? If he tried to process that through his mind, he would never even attempt to lift the truck. It's not possible. But he doesn't process it through his mind. It comes directly from his soul, and his soul doesn't take no for an answer. Got to lift the truck. So he lifts it. Can he lift it? No, he can't. But he does it anyway. He is denying and ignoring the world of tikkun, in which it is not possible. He's functioning on the level of tohu, in which all things are possible because the soul is very powerful. A human being who is healthy is a human being who processes his emotions through his intelligence. A healthy human being is a human being who processes his emotions through his intelligence. It has nothing to do whether you're in a good mood or bad mood. It has nothing to do whether you have a high self-image or a low self-image. It has to do with the process. A child, for example, cannot process their emotions through their intelligence. And that's why they are children, not grown adults, not full achieved or accomplished human beings. What does it mean for a child to grow? It means that the emotions that were there as juvenile emotions eventually learn to process through the mind. At bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah supposedly you have acquired that talent and today I am a man. <laughs> because today I can process my emotions through my intelligence and therefore I am now a mensch, a healthy human being. That's the introduction. Now let's take a look at today's topic. A human being is motivated by three impulses, three desires, three pleasures. One is an impulse, a desire, an instinct for goodness, for the good. We have a natural pleasure. You do something you know is good, you feel good. It feels good. Sometimes you actually wake up in the morning and you feel like doing something good. You're in the mood for goodness. The second possibility, or the second desire or impulse, is the attraction and the pleasure that we get from being wicked. When you know you've done something really bad, it feels good. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're in the mood. <laughs> Today I want to do something wicked. It's one of our many pleasures in life. One of the tragedies of not teaching Torah, one of the tragedies of having a secular state 
I don't mean country. I mean being in a, in a state of secular attitudes and secular opinions is that a secular person doesn't have the pleasure of being wicked. Because who's to say what's wicked? I mean, you don't want to go out and be a serial killer. So the wickedness that we used to enjoy is not available anymore. I remember feeling very wicked on Yom Kippur. See, back in the olden days, we lived in Brooklyn, and the World Series games would always come out in the same season as the high holidays. And of course, we don't play the radio or, or television on, on Yom Kippur. And the game is going on. We need to know what the score is. Whether you're a Dodger fan or a Yankee fan, either way, you've got to know what the score is. So on the break, during the prayers on Yom Kippur, we would walk outside and very casually make it to the corner where there was a newspaper stand and the guy sitting there would be listening. <laughs> so we would casually walk by and hopefully catch an announcement about the score of who was winning. And that felt so wicked. The third thing, the third desire, the third pleasure that a human being has that motivates their behavior is the neutral, the innocent. It's not good and it's not wicked. It's just your ordinary stuff. You want to eat lunch, a kosher lunch. That doesn't make it holy. You're not obligated to eat lunch, except on Shabbos. It's also not a sin because it's kosher. You didn't steal it. It's not Yom Kippur. So you eat lunch. And it feels good. A pleasure from the neutral. That which is neither good nor bad. It's just nice. It's innocent. Why do we have these three kinds of pleasures? It's because the soul has three parts to it. It has its godly part, its noble part. The noble part of our soul takes pleasure in goodness. Because goodness, we are taught, is noble. It elevates. And there's a pleasure in feeling that you have risen to a higher level. You've graduated. You've tasted something greater and bigger than yourself. People want to belong to an organization that does great things. Because the pleasure of being connected to something bigger than yourself. That's why we form congregations, communities, cities, states. We want to be part of something bigger. That is a natural instinct in the human soul. That desire to, to, to do good is defined or described in the following way. What is goodness? When is a person being good? If I give a dollar to charity to a poor man, is that good? The act is definitely good. Am I being good? 
If I give a dollar to a poor man, am I good? Not necessarily. It depends on what motivates me. A guy is following me down the street. He doesn't smell very pleasant. And he's bugging me to give him a dollar. So I give him the dollar to get rid of him. What I did was good. But was I being good? I was not being good. And I will not have the pleasure of feeling that I did something good. The definition of good is I feel that that person is more entitled to my dollar than I am. That's called good. No matter how much money you give out, no matter how much tzedakah you, you spread through the world and through your community, if you don't feel that the people receiving the money deserve it more than you, then you're not motivated by goodness. And you're not going to feel the pleasure of having done something good. Although you may be proud that the act was good, you may boast about it. You may say, oh, I gave a lot of charity. But it doesn't feel good because you didn't taste the goodness. Goodness means I can feel another person's need stronger than my own. In fact, in marriage, what does it mean to be good? Goodness in marriage means the husband feels that his wife's petty problems are more important than his own serious problems. That's called goodness. A person who says, I'll get married and I will benefit from the marriage and I will be helpful and useful to my wife. We will share the benefits of this marriage. I'll be good to her, she'll be good to me, I'll do certain things, she'll do other things, and together we will create a life. That's not goodness. That's practical. It's good business sense. May even be realistic, but it's not goodness. Goodness means if I marry you, your little problem will take precedent in my mind and in my heart over my problem even my serious problem. That's called goodness. Why should I have and you not? Why should I have two if you have one? Why should I have one and you have one when you need more than one? So I give mine away to you. Because you deserve it more than I. You need it more than me. That's called goodness. There's a certain pleasure that comes from that. Although the cynic, the skeptic might say, that's ridiculous. That's like being nasty to yourself. Of course you come first. There's a pleasure in that. But there's also a pleasure 
in putting someone else before yourself. Because it feels good. It is good. And goodness produces a certain kind of pleasure to a human being. The second impulse is wickedness. I want to do something bad. Why? Because it's bad. Now, why would you want to steal that? You already have one of those. Not a good question. A person doesn't steal because he needs it. A person steals because you're not allowed to. A person takes what is not his because it's not his. Having what belongs to you is not a pleasure. Taking something that doesn't belong to you, there's a certain pleasure to that. Whether it's the pleasure of the risk of getting caught or the pleasure of beating the system, defying God's will, however you want to describe it, there is a pleasure inherent in doing something that you know is forbidden. If nobody tells you what's forbidden, then you're cheated out of that pleasure. You take something, you think it belongs to you, well then what's the pleasure? The pleasure is when you know it's not yours, you know you can't take it, you know it's forbidden to steal, and you do it anyway. That impulse we describe in, in Jewish tradition as coming from the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. Evil inclination is not some kind of a demon that sits on your shoulder and whispers nasty things into your ear. Evil inclination means the pleasure that wickedness offers. That's the evil inclination. Evil promises some pleasure. So it tempts you to do what is wicked. The argument that if every woman was nice to her husband and if she always looked good then the husbands would not stray this is a silly argument it shows that we don't understand human nature no matter how beautiful the wife is there is no wickedness there and if the husband wakes up in the mood for something wicked he's got to look elsewhere he can have the pleasure of being good to his wife. He can't have the pleasure of being wicked with his wife. <laughs> Unless they both go out to rob a bank. But you don't have to be married for that. So we have the good and the bad. Each offers a certain pleasure and therefore creates a temptation and a desire in the human being. The third temptation is the neutral. You're not in a noble mood. You don't want to go out of your way for somebody else. You're not in a wicked mood. You don't want to risk getting caught. You don't want the hassles of it. You don't want to do anything wicked. You just want to relax and enjoy. Innocent. You want to have something to eat. Not matzah on Pesach. <laughs> not something holy and necessary. And also not something forbidden or non-kosher. 
You just want to eat something. The neutral pleasures, the permissible, the innocent. There's a certain pleasure to that as well. I don't mean pleasure to the food. Pleasure to the fact that it's innocent. That it's not ambitious. It's not noble. It's not wicked. It's innocent. It's just normal. Just natural. Think about the way we behave towards our parents. Honor your father and mother. Well, there are times, there are moments when we are motivated to go out of our way and put them first. Even their petty problems before our own serious issues or what we think is serious. There's a fantastic pleasure in that. Then there are times when we feel rebellious. We feel wicked. It's not just that we don't want to do what our parents need done. It's that we're hoping they need it so we can refuse to do it. We're hoping they'll call and ask so that we can say no. Because we're in a wicked mood. We need to establish the fact that I am not always available to you. And I don't owe you anything. And I've got my own life to live. And I'm just hoping you call so I can tell you that. Then there are times when you call your mother. Not because you're being noble, not because you're putting her before yourself, and it's not that you want to call her so you can tell her something nasty. You call your mother. Why? <laughs> what do you mean, why? She's my mother. It's neutral, it's innocent, it's normal. And that feels very good, especially in a world where there's very little sanity. Doing something just ordinary and normal feels really good. A child who doesn't sit in his father's chair, not out of some inspired honor of the parent, but because, well, you don't. You don't sit in your father. You don't. So he walks in. The only empty seat is his father's chair. So he goes into the other room because there's no place to sit in this room. Oh, but there's an empty chair, my father's chair. So you don't sit in your father's chair. What are you being a tzaddik? You're honoring your father. Maybe, I guess. But that's not the feeling. The feeling is, this is your father's chair, and this is your chair. You don't sit in your father's chair. It's just normal. And it feels good to be normal. Here's what Torah tells us concerning these three impulses. Since we live for a purpose, none of these three are acceptable as they stand. Because what's the purpose? It gives you pleasure to be good. So you're good. What's the purpose? It gives you pleasure to be wicked, so you're wicked. It gives you pleasure to be normal, so you're normal. And you go through all three experiences almost every day. What's the point? A bear 
eats in the summer and sleeps in the winter. That's what he does. But what's the point? A human being enjoys being nice? What's the point? He enjoys being wicked? And what's the point? What is the purpose? He enjoys being normal. Being normal? What's the point? What is the point? A human being is born human, lives 80, 90 years, dies as a human. What happened? What was the point? So knowing what a human being is still doesn't give us a purpose. You can't say, my purpose in life is to be normal. That is life. Now what is the purpose? My purpose in life is to be wicked. No, that's just another part of life. What is your purpose? So to each of the three, we are told that we have to elevate them to a more purposeful service of God. Elevate human behavior to where it serves God's purpose. For example, being good. The pleasure that a person gets from being good is a normal aspect or dimension of human life. What are we supposed to make of this? What is our contribution? This is how God creates us. You have pleasure from goodness. All right. Take that pleasure for goodness and move it over the line into godliness. What does that mean? If you enjoy giving charity, it gives you pleasure. Move that goodness from just being good to being godly. The way you do that, don't stop when it stops feeling good. If you really believe in the goodness of it and you are looking for a purpose to your goodness, then don't stop when the pleasure stops. Every person has a certain threshold. I give $1,000 a month to charity. I've been doing it for many years. Give 2000 Unthinkable. I can't. I can't. <laughs> you give a million dollars a year to charity. Give $2 million? I can't. My pleasure doesn't go that far. I enjoy giving a million. Two million would not be enjoyable. I enjoy giving ten dollars. Fifteen dollars doesn't feel good. So I don't give fifteen. I only give ten. I enjoy honoring my parents whenever I get a chance. <laughs> but to go out of my way to make the chance, that doesn't feel good. So all my noble instincts, all my goodness, ends where the pleasure of it ends. To elevate it to something higher than that, to give it a purpose beyond its natural goodness, is to give until it hurts. It doesn't have to hurt. 
It's beyond your comfort level. And why would you go beyond your comfort level? Because it is better than you. The act, the kindness, the goodness, the mitzvah is better than you. So why should it be restricted by your pleasure or lack of? That's called godliness. Going beyond your comfort zone in doing good. That's how you give your good impulse its elevation and purpose. What do you do with the wicked impulse? The wicked impulse has a lot of energy. And it's a different kind of energy. It's a different kind of pleasure. If we could harness that energy and transform it into something good, now it has a purpose, a good purpose. Remember on Simcha's Torah once, when we're supposed to be dancing and celebrating with the Torah, there was this guy in shul, and he was uh, going around the circle dancing, but without any great enthusiasm. So one of the teachers came over to him and whispered into his ear. He said, you know, during the year, you sin with a lot more enthusiasm. That's not fair. If you put so much enthusiasm into sinning, you should put at least that much enthusiasm into celebrating your Jewishness, celebrating the Torah. So can't you dance the way you sin with that same enthusiasm? Transform, sublimate the pleasure of wickedness into goodness. The yeshiva boy once said, the order, the schedule of the day in the yeshiva, in the, in the, in the rabbinic college, was that you have to learn Talmud, Gemara, for a certain num number of hours until, let's say, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Then you have to study Code of Jewish Law. Then you have to study Hasidic teachings, Hasidic philosophy. Well, he decided he was going to steal some of the time during the day to study some extra Hasidic philosophy. And so when he was supposed to be studying Talmud, he snuck, <laughs> he snuck a Hasidic text under, under his book, and he was really studying Hasidic philosophy instead of the Talmud, and it felt really wicked. But what he was really doing was sublimating the violation of rules in order to do something holy. We can take that impulse and turn it into goodness. Of course, that takes some thoughtfulness. You've got to be aware. You've got to be conscious. You've got to be purposeful. So when you take that energy, that impulse, that temptation to do something bad, and be bad to it. The impulse is to do something spiteful. The right response is, be spiteful to it. And say, oh, you feel like doing something wicked. Well, just in spite, we're going to go and do something good. 
And that's not merely exchanging one possibility for another. You're taking the energy that you felt in the desire to do something wicked and you're moving it into goodness. Another form of this is forgiveness. When you're angry at somebody, you hate somebody, and you forgive them, genuinely, not just dismiss them, forgive them, like your children. You're angry at your child, and then they say something cute, and that's it, you forgive them. What happens there? It's not merely a shift from a bad mood to a good mood. It's not you were angry, now you're not. Forgiveness means you've taken the angry energy and you've added it to your love. And that's why when you make up, you love the child more than you loved him before. Where did the additional love come from? From the anger. From the hate. Because that energy doesn't just disappear. It's not like, never mind. You were angry. Where is it going to go? If you forgive, then that angry energy now becomes available as love energy. You have more energy to love your child. That's giving wickedness its purpose. That's elevating that desire or that impulse to something more noble, something greater and higher. Of course, the innocent is by its very nature begging to be moved one way or the other. That which is permissible will become wicked if you abuse it, and it will become holy if you use it properly. If you just leave it as it is, it's neutral. Nishtahin or nishtahel. Neither here nor there. If you eat thoughtfully, respectfully, gratefully, then the eating experience has become something absolutely positive good. If you eat irresponsibly, then you're dragging this innocent act into the negative column, into something destructive and nasty. That's the nature of the innocent. That's the danger of the innocent. An innocent child, is that good news or bad news? A child is so innocent, right, and therefore And therefore, if an innocent child does a mitzvah, does something good, it is so beautiful. When you do something good with that kind of innocence, magnificent. On the other hand, innocence can be very corruptible. A child is innocent, that's a warning. You better keep an eye on this child. He's innocent. It can be corrupted. The innocence can become naivete. That's dangerous. 
So as a child is growing, do you want him to remain innocent into adulthood? Absolutely. That would be beautiful. But do you want him to remain juvenile or naive? No, that's not good. So what do we do with our innocent part? We take charge. This is up to me. God decides what is good and what is wicked. There are 248 positive commandments. Those are the good things. There are 365 forbidden behaviors. Those are the bad things. No one has ever added to that list. No one has been able to come up with an 11th commandment that made any sense. Because right and wrong is predetermined by God. So that which is right is, is already defined. That which is wrong is defined. That which is innocent, this is up to you. And this is where we make the most progress. Because how often do you deal with the wicked? But every day, almost constantly, you're doing stuff that is innocent. And it's up to you to make that into something special at every occasion, at every opportunity. And the opportunities are almost constant. So now we have a picture of what is a healthy human being. It has nothing to do with your chemical imbalances. Those are medical conditions. We're talking about a mensch. What makes a mensch? What makes a human being a healthy human being, not a healthy creature? So we're not talking in medical terms. We're talking in value terms. If a child knows, I can't eat that candy, it's not kosher, that's a healthy child. If a child knows, I need to be home at 6 because my mother told me to, that's a healthy child. Now, her friend can stay out later because her mother said she should be home at 7. To a healthy child, that's not an issue. I have to be home at 6 because my mother told me. You better be home at 7 because your mother told you. And it's not that way. How come you get to stay up till 7 and I have to... That's not an issue for, the, for a healthy child. To the healthy child, I am. I am defined. I know myself by what I am supposed to do. If my mother says six, then that's me. Then that's who I am. I am the girl whose mother wants her home at six. This is not an interference with my freedom. That's me. A Jewish child says to his non-Jewish friend, I can't eat that because I just had meat and that's milk. And the non-Jewish kid says, I can eat it. Is this bad news? This is good news to a healthy child because the healthy child will say, uh-huh, you see, now you know who you are and I know who I am. 
Because you can, I can't. That's what makes me, me, and you, you. Well, but why should that be? Why, you know, if you can't eat it, why can I? And if I can't eat it, why? That's not a question. Why am I me and you are you? That's not a problem. That's healthy. Values are what make us who we are. What you believe, what you're committed to, what you may or may not do, where you do or don't belong, that's you. How smart are you? That's irrelevant. How brave are you? That's not what makes me me. That makes me brave. Who is me? Me is my values. If a child is falling apart, their life is not coming together, don't work on giving them a better self-image. There's something much better than that. And that is, give him a clearer definition of what his life is supposed to be, and then help him work towards it. Give him his purpose, and then show him how to get there. Don't tell him he's wonderful. That doesn't do any good. Especially if he starts to believe that he's wonderful, and I've got a, a whole new set of problems. The kid's impossible because he thinks he's wonderful. So we have a definition. A human being is healthy when his emotions are filtered through his intelligence. For example, the three impulses, the pleasure of doing good, the pleasure of doing bad, and the pleasure of being innocent. You can just let them be, they're natural, or you can filter them through the mind with a purpose, with a reason, with a system. And through the mind, the person not only recognizes the purpose, but has the tool with which to achieve it. Because if you study the right things, you think the right thoughts, then the emotions will follow. And you will find yourself elevating the good till it becomes godly, because you're not just being good by instinct, you're being good on purpose. If you read the right text, study the right books, and think the right thoughts, then your evil, wicked pleasures will more easily be saddled, reined in, and transformed into something positive. Because you're the boss, not it. And of course, the innocent, the everyday activity, suddenly takes on a nobility because you give it thought. You give it intelligence. One of my teachers told me he was not a chassid by tradition. His family were not chassidim. But he came to visit a chassidic yeshiva. And he decided to stay. And what impressed him? Lunch. <laughs> he was in the dining room and the students went to eat lunch. And the way they ate impressed him so much he decided to stay in that yeshiva. 
What did he see? I mean, lunch is lunch. And it wasn't like they had any great food. This was in Russia in the difficult times. What he said to us was, for the first time in his life, he saw people eating and it looked intelligent. That make any sense? They were eating and there was an intelligence to it. It was a thoughtful behavior instead of the natural eat. Even their eating had a certain nobility to it. There was a purpose to it. It was part of a bigger plan. It wasn't like, let's study deep philosophy and then take a break and pig out. Pardon the expression. It was the entire day had a purpose. Eating, yeah, that's part of it. So you decide when you're going to eat, you decide where you're going to eat, you decide what you're going to eat, and you decide how you're going to eat. You're not off duty when you're eating. It's all part of the tikkun, it's all part of the elevation and the perfection of yourself and the world. And that's called a thoughtful way of life. In a thoughtful way of life, all three impulses take on a whole new meaning. Can you imagine getting your children excited about this notion? If you can inspire children with this plan, this view of life, this view of themselves, what are you doing? Taking somebody else's toy. <laughs> Why? I want to. If you've educated your child to a thoughtful way of life, you have an opportunity. Instead of just saying, you're a rotten kid, don't steal that toy, put it back, or I'll send you to your room, you have something much more meaningful to say to the child. You have an opportunity to transform something really nasty into something good. Your child sits down to eat. It's an opportunity. It's not just eating. A child does something nice because they're in a good mood. It's an opportunity. Everything is an opportunity to grow, to rise, to improve, to ennoble, and to fix the world. A child who thinks along those lines is not going to be depressed, is not going to be bored, is not going to be easily swayed by peer pressure, is not going to walk around looking dazed, unable to figure out what's the point, why put up with it. They won't get jaded which is what's happening too often today. And the best part of it all, if you're busy teaching your children to be that way, <laughs> it's got to rub off on you too.
So everybody benefits, everybody gains. If, in fact, your life becomes a more thoughtful one, inevitably, your community gains. It's automatic. One more thoughtful individual in a congregation changes the congregation. One more thoughtful congregation changes the Jewish people. If Jews become more thoughtful, how can that not benefit the world? So you talk about tikkun olam, fixing the world. This is how it happens. It's not a stretch. It's natural. It's inevitable. You raise your child thoughtful, you're thoughtful. If you're thoughtful, then you are making your community more thoughtful because you're a member of the community. If your community is more thoughtful, it's a domino effect. Only in this case, the dominoes stand up rather than fall down. Makes for a good world. And that, after all, is what we're here for. That's what it's all about. Next week, we'll talk about realities. A human being can perceive reality in different ways. What makes something real to you? I mean, you hear about things. You, when does it become real? It's like, you read the package on the cigarette, and it says, the, the label on the cigarette package, and it says this might cause blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. It's not real to you. What makes it real? Your husband is really upset. You say, yeah, I know. No, you don't know. The next day, you wake up and you say, what? You're really upset? Why didn't you say so? <laughs> when did it become real? What makes something real? On the other hand, you read Reader's Digest, and it says that some people have a rare, a rare disease with certain symptoms, and all of a sudden, you have it. <laughs> You're sure you have it. It has become real to you. Well, maybe it shouldn't. In this case, it shouldn't have become real to you. What made it real? You know the government is out to get you. No, they're not. Oh, they are. <laughs> How did that become real to you? So there are so many things we feel and we know and we understand, and they're not real. And then other things, oh, that's real. What does that? There are four different ways that I know of, which we'll talk about next week, and then see what we need to do about that in order to be a healthy human being. Any questions, by the way? before you leave. The question is, if you're always trying to elevate everything, doesn't that put a lot of stress 
Doesn't that create a lot of anxiety? And isn't that a bad thing? Stress and anxiety are bad things. And elevating the world, being thoughtful, need not create any anxiety at all or any stress at all because no one's testing you. You can't fail. You can only win. Stress comes when there's a possibility of failure. There is no possibility of failure here. If you do what is good because you enjoy doing good, that's okay. Even if you don't elevate it to something more purposeful. You can't lose. So if you try elevating it and you elevate it a little bit, you're great. You don't elevate it, you're all right. If you feel like doing something wicked and you go ahead and do it instead of transforming, well, that's not so nice. That might create some anxiety. But if you know that you tried to elevate it, to transform it into something good, that's reassuring. That's comforting. The fact that you failed, try again tomorrow. No one's going to throw you out of the classroom or anything. This is life. And in the neutral things, if you don't give the neutral, innocent behavior any higher purpose, so you're a normal human being. Ordinary, but normal. There's no downside. Unless you set up this, I don't know, this internal kind of punishment where you punish yourself for not being better, well, don't do that. Is that a punishment that you feel like a sham Yeah. Anxiety doesn't come from disappointment. Disappointment is very nice. You know, when you tell your child, you know, you disappointed me. That's not destructive. So if you feel you disappointed God, well, you probably did. Does that mean you lost? Does that mean you're, you're lost? Does that mean you're out of the game? In every relationship, there are moments when you enhance the relationship and there are moments when you disappoint the relationship. That's a relationship. In a real relationship, the disappointment is not the end of anything. It just enriches the fabric of the relationship. But if you're thinking win-lose, if you're thinking, I either have this relationship or I lose the relationship, that's, that's a lot of anxiety. But God already promised that no matter how many times you disappoint him, he's not quitting. 